A few summers ago, I was up in Ely at my in-law's cabin, and my father-in-law, Glenn, my brother-in-law, Andrew, and I had been tasked with cutting down some uh, mostly dead spruce trees uh, close to one of the roads. Uh, The idea is it's better to cut them down on your terms than to wait for them to fall down at some inconvenient moment. And so we were gathering the tools to go out and do this, uh, and and my father-in-law was having trouble getting his chainsaw started. Uh, And and Andrew and I, looking around, we, we saw a couple axes in the garage used for quite a while, and we thought, hey, well, you're... We'll just take these axes. Uh, you know, these are just little. Chop down a spruce tree with one of these axes. So we, we take them, uh, and, and our father-in-law says, I don't think you want to do that. And we said, sure we do. It, 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 we'll be done in no time. Uh, and he said, I, I don't know that that's going to work out very well. Well, of course, now we feel challenged, right? we like provoked. Are you saying we can't do this? So we took them, we go down to this little little grove of trees we're trying to cut down, and uh, we start chopping, and chopping, and chopping, and then we switch places. I rest, Andrew's chopping, and chopping, and chopping, and finally, the first of these little trees finally falls over, as my father-in-law laughed. Uh, And I would say, I think I speak for both Andrew and myself when I say that we learned two important things from that experience that morning. One, if you're going to cut down a tree with an axe, it's worth taking some time to sharpen it first. So that's one thing. Uh, Second, if you have never cut down a tree without a chainsaw, I can now tell you it is almost impossible to appreciate how amazing they are. It's almost impossible to appreciate how much work they save you. And the time it took Andrew and I just to catch our breath from cutting down one, my father-in-law was able to zip through the other three or four. No problem. But it's hard to appreciate if you've never had to do it without the chainsaw. Now, I know this is going to be a weird transition, but as Pastor Paul said, this is Pentecost Sunday. And I actually think Pentecost presents us with a similar kind of challenge, because at least for those of us born in the last 2,000 years, a post-Pentecost world is all we've ever known. And I think that makes it difficult for us sometimes to appreciate how significant event that was in the grand sweep of salvation redemption history. And so here's what I'd like to do this morning. I'd like for us to take a look at Pentecost uh, within the the sort of broader context of the narrative of Scripture. Specifically, what I'd like to do is look at three stories from the Old Testament that I think can provide us some context for what happens at Pentecost. Uh, Some stories that can shed some light on what happened that day in Acts chapter 2. And then, after we get some of that wider biblical context then I think we can think together about how the coming of the Holy Spirit might have changed the apostles' expectations for their mission and how maybe it should change our expectations for our own. All right, so let's start with Acts chapter 2. So turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. We're going to hit a couple of different passages this morning, so get out your Bible, keep it handy. Uh, We're just going to reread verses 1 through 4, a short part of the section Paul read for us earlier. 
This is Luke's account of Pentecost. He writes, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He says, When the day of Pentecost came, they, that is, the followers of Jesus, were all together in one place. When suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They then saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated out and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. So I'd like you to think just about what actually happened here. We're used to it, but it's maybe worth just thinking about what actually happened. This is a dramatic event. Uh, the followers of Jesus, the small group, they're gathered together sitting in this house when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's this violent rushing wind blowing through the house, right? This wind from heaven, they can hear it, they can feel it. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of this blowing wind, there's fire, Right? They see this fire in the midst of the wind, and as they look, this fire separates out into these individual tongues of fire, each one settling over one of the believers. And the result of this exhilarating, I have to imagine, you know, exciting and maybe a little bit scary event, is that each person, everyone, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and they immediately began speaking in other languages. Now, just a quick note here on translation. Uh, it's great. I can tap into what Paul said earlier. Your translation there might say they began speaking in tongues, and that is technically correct. But I've opted here for languages because we know from the following verses that what they're speaking isn't an unknown language. It's not what we would call maybe ecstatic tongues today. It's a language that is a known spoken language. And we know that because there are people outside the house that hear this group of mostly rural Galilean Jews speaking and they go, wait a minute, how is it those guys are speaking in Parsian and Greek, right? How is it that they're speaking our languages? How did they learn that, right? They're, they are filled with the Holy Spirit and they began speaking recognizable human languages. All right, just a note, but I wanted to point that out. So what we have this morning is this dramatic and mysterious event featuring wind and fire from heaven and resulting in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in each believer. And as we try to make sense of what happened here, I want us to look at three passages from the Old Testament that I think will shed some light, that will help us appreciate the significance of what happened. So first, turn with me back to page one of the Bible, Genesis chapter one. Now, this might sound funny to you, but I think that when you read this story about the, the wind from heaven and the spirit of God, one of the things that that might remind you of is creation, Genesis one, one, and two. Look what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God, was hovering over the waters. Now, before I jump in, I'm sorry, one more little translation note this morning, but it's important. Uh, the word we translate as spirit here in verse 2 is the Hebrew word ruach. Uh, and that word in Hebrew can mean breath or wind 
or spirit. They, just, they have one word for all three of those things. Just interestingly, so does Greek. The Greek word pneuma also covers all three areas of meaning. And that means sometimes scholars debate over how we should translate it where. But we can sidestep that a little bit for our purposes this morning because our passage has wind and spirit, right? We've got both things. So whichever way we go, I think you can see some similarities to what's happening in Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2, think about it. We've got a wind from heaven blowing through this house and the spirit of God filling the believers, right? And while it's not the same, one of the closest situations we have in scripture to that is here in Genesis chapter one, where the spirit of God is blowing, hovering over the waters of the deep. And what happens in Genesis one when the spirit of God hovers over the deep? Well, the rest of Genesis 1 tells us what happens when God's ruach blows over the formless void of the earth is nothing less than the creation of the world as we know it, of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. Light breaks into the darkness. What was void is filled with life and beauty and color. What was formless and chaotic is carefully crafted and ordered. The creative power of God goes to work, and the result is the majesty of our cosmos. So how might this shed some light on what's happening in Acts chapter 2, if at all? Well, when I read in Acts 2 about this wind coming from heaven, blowing through creation, when I, believe, when I read that the believers are filled with the Holy Spirit, I think what we're getting is a clear message that what is happening here in Acts chapter 2 is somehow commensurate with what God is doing in creation in Genesis chapter 1. Somehow in that small house, God is beginning a new work of creation. We are seeing the beginning of a fresh creative act of God. We are seeing that the power of God that was at work to form the cosmos is now at work again to bring the rule of God into our world. And look, just in, in case you think I'm being a little crazy here, it's worth noting that the early church immediately begins to talk about the work of the Spirit in exactly that kind of language. Think about what we just studied in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Think of what Paul says. He says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a what? New creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Almost immediately, the new church recognizes that when you give your allegiance to Jesus, when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, they don't know how else to explain what happens to people except for new creation. Because when God pours out his spirit into our world, what we would expect to see, what Genesis 1 leads us, teaches us to expect, is a new creative act of God. All right, so that's the first thing. Genesis 1 would lead us to expect that when God pours out his spirit, we would see new creation. 
A second Old Testament story that I think can shed some light on the events of Pentecost is the prophecy of dry bones from Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 14. So I told you we're going to work you out here. Head over to Ezekiel 37 while I set the stage a little bit. If you're not aware, Ezekiel was an Old Testament prophet, uh, and and he was working as a prophet during the end of the kingdom of Judah, right before and right after they were conquered by Babylon and exiled. In other words, he is a prophet during a terrible time uh, in the history of Israel. Uh, And he delivered famously the devastating news to God's people that God's glory, his presence, had left the temple. If you've ever heard the phrase, wheels within wheels, that's from the vision Ezekiel gets of God's presence leaving the temple and returning to heaven. Uh, He was a prophet when many wondered if God had abandoned Israel for good, if he had turned his back on them permanently. Uh, And, you know, to be fair, they had good reason to wonder. Uh, The northern ten tribes had been conquered and destroyed by the Assyrian Empire, and now those that were left in the kingdom of Judah had been conquered and sacked by Babylon and exiled all over the empire. And so many of them were left looking around at each other going, is this it? Is the covenant dead? And so it's in this time of despair and pessimism about the present and the future that God gives Ezekiel a vision, all right? And he does a very strange thing. He, he, he brings Ezekiel in this vision, he takes him, and he brings him to the foot of this valley that is stacked with dry bones. Now, the point about them being dry bones is that they are not just dead, they are long dead. They are really dead, right? So I apologize for getting a little bit graphic here, but the point is, it's not recent. There's no muscle attached. There's no tendons or sinews. It's just, we're, we're down to the bones. That's it, right? It's, this is as dead as dead gets. And so God then, in, in front of this you know, fairly morbid scene, asks Ezekiel what, what sounds to me a little bit like a trick question. He, he says to Ezekiel, the son of man, can these bones live? Now, the, right, you know, the, the normal answer to that question, the obvious answer is no, right? The, these are beyond dead and beyond hope. But Ezekiel, rightly suspecting God didn't bring him here for no reason, offers up what I have to admit is just maybe the ultimate Sunday school answer, right? Uh, he turns to God and says, Sovereign Lord, that is all-powerful God, you alone know. You alone know. And then look at what God says to Ezekiel. He tells him, prophesy to the bones. Look at verse 4. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. Verse 5. God says to these bones, I will make breath, I will make ruach enter you, and you will come to life. Now again, remember that word ruach can mean breath or wind or spirit. It's all just Ruach in Hebrew. And indeed, what we have here, prophesy to the bones, I will make my breath enter you and you will live. But then look down in verse 14. When God explains this vision to Ezekiel, he says, look, Ezekiel, these bones, this is the house of Israel. But one day, here's what I'm going to do. Verse 14, I will, I will put my spirit in you. 
I will put my spirit in you and you will live. Think about what God is saying in this oracle. In this time of national despair, God gives Ezekiel a vision that reminds all Israel that there is no one and nothing so dead that the spirit, breath, wind of God cannot raise them to new life. Nothing. Because where the spirit of the Lord is, there is life. A life that can reach even beyond the power of death. So I want you to just think back now to Acts chapter 2. Think about what has happened in Acts 2, but think about it with Ezekiel 37 in the front of your mind. What is it exactly that God has done? God has put his Holy Spirit into the followers of Jesus. They are filled, filled with his Spirit. Now, when you hear that with Ezekiel 37 in the background, what we should immediately think, what we should expect, is that this indwelling of the Holy Spirit would produce new life. That it would produce new life in all who receive it. A life, maybe even, that can reach beyond the power of death. And of course, again, it's no coincidence, this is exactly how the early church begins to describe what they witness when some new Jew or Greek gives their allegiance to Jesus and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. The members of the early church look at that person and they go, that's new life. That is a new person that I see there. That's a miracle of God. Paul says basically the same thing in Ephesians 2. Right into the church of Ephesus, he says, Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, then you have already been raised to new life in him. How can Paul say that? How can Paul say that when they still live in this fallen world in their mortal bodies? Well, the answer, if you keep reading, is that Paul can say that because they have already received the Holy Spirit. They've been united to Christ. They now share in his new life. So when we, when we read about this, the, the wind and the spirit of God blowing into this house, we should think of new creation, and we should think also of new life. I have one more I want to I get to this morning, uh, and I, I'll just say, just for the record, if we had more time, there are more passages we could look at along this kind of theme, uh, the, the uh, burning bush, the pillar of fire in Exodus, just for example. But I want to end this morning with one that's going to point us toward our application. So turn with me one final passage to Micah 3, verse 8. Micah 3. Micah is near the end of the Old Testament, comes right after Jonah. Uh, now, like Ezekiel, Micah is a prophet and here in chapter 3, verse 8, uh, Micah does us the favor of explaining exactly how he ends up with this particular vocation. Here in Micah 3, verse 8, he says this. He says, but as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. All right, so, so here we have a clear Old Testament reference to someone being filled with the Spirit. 
And helpfully, we are explicitly told why God sent his spirit to Micah. Micah explains that he was filled with the spirit and with power for a purpose. And that purpose, Micah says, is so that he might proclaim the word of the Lord to Israel. Now, in this case, that word comes in the form of judgment. But the point for our purposes this morning is that God empowers Micah through his spirit to proclaim his, that is, God's message to his people. So let me just ask, when we think back to Acts chapter 2, can you think of anybody in that story who, you know, might need the spirit and power of God in order to proclaim the message of God? Well, of course, everybody, right? Everybody in that story is in exactly that situation. Uh, In fact, like Micah, all of the apostles gathered in this house have been called to exactly this calling. Acts chapter 1. Listen to what Jesus says. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It's the last thing Jesus says to his disciples before ascending to heaven. It happens right before Pentecost. Jesus turns to his disciples before he leaves and he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Friends, this this is just like the commissioning of Micah in Micah 3.8. They have been commissioned, they have been called to proclaim the message of the Lord. And they have also here in Acts chapter 2, like Micah, they have received the Holy Spirit in power in order to proclaim that gospel, just as Jesus promised. And it's worth pointing out, as we read earlier in the service, that in the very next verses, Peter, full of the Spirit and power, will do exactly that. He will go out and he will declare to his fellow Jews who have gathered to Jerusalem from all over the Mediterranean, he he will declare to them, that God has made this Jesus whom they crucified both Lord and Messiah, and they will hear it, and many, thousands of them, thousands will believe it. Friends, when we read that the apostles have been filled with the Holy Spirit, this is exactly what we would expect We would expect that like Micah, like Ezekiel, that filled with God's spirit, they would proclaim God's word, his message with power. And here, not just in Acts chapter 2, all throughout the book, we see the apostles and early followers of Jesus doing exactly that. Sometimes in the face, in the teeth of really hostile audiences, But they do it anyway with courage and power and and almost always there are at least some who hear and believe. All right, let me try and tie up these different ideas this morning and offer some application. Look, my hope in doing this, I know this is a little bit odd, it's kind of a theme sermon more than anything else, but my goal in looking at some of these Old Testament passages is to give us a better sense for the magnitude and significance of what happened at Pentecost. In fact, I think you could argue quite easily, I know I could argue quite easily, that from the point of view of the New Testament, we still live in what you might rightly call the age of the Holy Spirit. 
That is, this entire stretch of history from Pentecost to the second coming of Jesus is characterized primarily by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our world. And because that is true, we should expect to see a few things. We should expect to see, we should expect to see evidence of new creation as God's kingdom and his rule breaks into our world. We should expect to see evidence of new life all around us as the Holy Spirit convicts people of the truth of the gospel. And third, we should expect to see the followers of Jesus proclaiming the gospel with boldness and power to a world that desperately needs to hear it. And for my, my part, I would add that I think if we care to look, we can see all three of those things. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means that if we believe Pentecost really happened, that we ought to be hopeful. Hopeful. That's the point of that oracle in Ezekiel as well. Look, I, I know, I am well aware, there is plenty to be worried about, plenty to find discouraging, uh, plenty happening in our world to upset us. And from time to time, I find myself upset, worried, discouraged. I live here too. But listen, God has poured out his spirit. The spirit that hovered over the deep at the dawn of creation is at work in our world right now. And so I would just ask you, I would encourage you, next time you're, you're just discouraged, next time you're frustrated at the direction of our culture, at events in our world, I would encourage you to pause for a moment and pray and give thanks to God for the gift of his Holy Spirit. And I would encourage you to ask yourself, what is happening right now that is so terrible, that is so frustrating, that the creative power of the sovereign God of all creation cannot redeem it and transform it? Look, I know we're all going to have our moments but friends, we need to stop parroting the narratives of those around us with no hope, of those who do not worship the risen Messiah, of those who are not filled with the Holy Spirit. They have a right to be pessimistic. We should know better, because amongst other things, we have already received the Holy Spirit let me close with one more application. Look, I know in some ways, in addition to just the change in the general culture, it is getting specifically harder and harder to bear witness to Jesus in our own little corner of the world here. People don't believe it. They don't want to hear it. Uh, in some cases, people are angry that you believe it, right? Uh, I know it. Uh, like I say, I live here too. I know our local mission field has become more difficult and at times even hostile, but let me simply ask you, uh, this just, as I was thinking about this and my own frustrations and anxieties with, with that, uh, I'm preparing for the lesson this week, and as I was thinking about that, thinking about how it's become more difficult, I just thought again of God's question to Ezekiel. And so I would ask it to you. When you look at our culture, I would ask you, can these dry bones be made to live, brothers and sisters?
Can they, even they, be convicted of the truth about Jesus Christ? Well, if you've been paying attention this morning, you already know the right answer to that question. And that is, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. You alone know. And just as God called Ezekiel to speak to those bones, so he commissioned his apostles to witness to their generation, so he has called us to bear witness to ours. In the same spirit that was in Ezekiel and Micah, the same spirit that was in the early apostles, is in us today. And look, for the record, it's never been easy, right? Just try telling Jeremiah, or for that matter, the early believers who were crucified and fed to lions, try telling them our culture makes it difficult to testify to Jesus, right? God never promised it would be easy. What he has promised is that he would be with us always, And that he would provide us a power more than equal, more than equal to our calling. And at Pentecost, he gave us both. About a month ago, I was extremely fortunate to be with my family in Ephesus. I think I've got a picture here. So this is a picture I took while we were in the ancient city of Ephesus. Um, Because of some weird historical, actually a mosquito-borne disease. At some point, early 200, 300 AD, Ephesus, the whole city picked up and moved closer to the coast. But what that meant is, unlike a lot of other ancient cities where just new buildings are constantly being built on top and around the old, Ephesus was mostly left as is, all right? And so it, it is a huge area of excavation. And when you walk through there, I'll tell you what impressed me right away is that this is a wealthy, powerful city. And indeed, it's true. In Paul's day, when Paul is writing this letter, when he is visiting Ephesus, it would have had a population of around 250,000 people, which would have made it probably the second most populous city in the world at the time. And just because I find this comparison helpful, That's a population the city of London wouldn't reach until the 1600s A.D. Ephesus is that big in A.D. 30, okay? This is a city full of wealth, full of power, prominent, an important city in the Roman Empire. And as I walked through this massive city, I mean, and I got to tell you, they built it to be impressive to those who visited it. It's still impressive, you, you get a sense for the, the power and prestige and wealth of that city walking around it today. And I thought, walking through there, this is a city of 250,000 people. And when Paul writes that letter, there are maybe, maybe 20 believers in the whole city. And the vast majority of those inhabitants have never heard the name Jesus. They don't know what a Messiah is. Right? And this, this little church, they have no money, no cultural influence, no power of any kind. And if I just told you that in the abstract, you would think that sounds like a failed religion. <laughs> right? That's not going to work. How, how is that going to grow? How is that going to take root? How is that going to prosper in a city that, by the way, over the next couple centuries would be extremely hostile to this faith, would at times take active uh, government measures to stamp it out. And I'm here to tell you that over the next two centuries, 
the number of Christians, not just in that city, but in the Roman Empire, exploded. And it happened without money, happened without cultural influence, and it happened without power. It happened, really, for two reasons. Because those who were called were faithful. And because they had received the Holy Spirit and power. As followers of Jesus, we have plenty of challenges facing us today. We do, and I don't want to minimize them. That's not my goal this morning. They are significant. Rather, what I hope we have done this morning is to remind ourselves that we live on the other side of Pentecost, is to remind ourselves that he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. It's to remind ourselves that the same spirit that filled the apostles, the same spirit that was working through the church of Ephesus, is at work in and through us too. And if scripture is any guide this morning, then we ought to face those challenges knowing, knowing that nothing is impossible for those who are full of the Holy Spirit when they serve the kingdom of God. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the gift of your spirit. God, I, I pray this morning that you would, you would open the eyes of our imagination. God, that you, you would help us to stop boxing in, uh, to, to stop minimizing, to not minimize what you have done at Pentecost. Enlarge our minds. Father, help us to see the, the significance of, the majesty of what happened at Pentecost. Help us, Lord, to appreciate fully the gift you have given us in the Holy Spirit. And I pray, God, that when we are, when we are discouraged and frustrated, and, and you know we have reason at times to be discouraged and frustrated. Father, help us not to despair. Help us instead to pray with gratitude that you would send your Spirit, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, give us, give us an attitude of expectation that we would pray that uh, not without hope and not even with sort of a, a blind optimism, but with a hope firmly rooted in the spirit of God that is at work even now in creation. In your name we pray, amen.